when you're doing something quote unquote heroic, it doesn't feel that way at the time, most of the time. It's like those heroes that were, you know, marching with Dr. King or sitting at those counters or riding on those Freedom Ride buses or, you know, walking into hell in Birmingham with the hoses and dog. It certainly didn't feel glorious when they were doing it. Their feet hurt. You know, it was painful. It was disgusting. It was humiliating and all the things they felt. Well, now, decades later, we look back on there and it gives us goosebumps because it was heroic. And see, most people are waiting for the goosebumps as they're doing something heroic instead of just, no, make a move, make a move and watch what God does and then make another move and then pay attention and look for the next open door, the next invitation, the next idea that pops in your head. And don't wait for the, you know, the glow and the goosebumps and the white light of heaven of the angels singing. It's like, it, it doesn't work that way. It worked through action, you know, coupled with faith and then miracles happen. From the nonprofit organization Orphan Aid Liberia, this is the Love Period Podcast, a show about the stories of leaders, creators, groundbreakers, and pioneers currently leading movements or organizations who have a focus on serving other people who at some point had to lift up their anchor, step out in faith, step out into the unknown to get them where they are today. I'm your host, Jacob Burson, and on this episode of the Love Period Podcast, we get to talk to author, speaker, and founder of the Power of Peace Project, Kit Cummings. Kit and his team at the Power of Peace Project are specialists in turning rivals into role models. The system Kit and his team has developed is absolutely phenomenal in going into very difficult situations and even violent situations, ranging from prisons to schools and bringing in peace and reconciliation into those environments is absolutely phenomenal. Kit's story that you're going to hear today about stepping into one of Georgia's most violent prisons and using his system and his team to play a huge role into moving that prison into the top of the list as one of the most peaceful prisons in the state is truly inspiring. I can't wait to share with this conversation with you guys today. So sit back, relax, and join me in this conversation with Kit Cummings. All right. Hey, everybody. Jacob Burson with the Love Period Podcast. And online, we have Kit Cummings with the Power of Peace Project. Kit, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So the way we kind of start off this podcast kind of get the extra, get the brain matter going and get stretched out, doing some some dynamic stretching going on here. We do a little <laughs> rapid fire segment, but a little bit different today. Today's quick fire <laughs> segment is going to be Christmas related. All right. So you ready for this? I think. Let's see. <laughs> there is no wrong answers. All right. So Christmas related rapid fire segment, Kit, what's, the, what's your favorite Christmas movie? It's a wonderful life. Wonderful life. Okay, if if you are in that no on the going on the wonderful life scale, if there is a Christmas movie about your life, if somebody were to come up with one Christmas season about Kit Cummings, who is playing your role? Who is <laughs> like who I is the no actor idea playing why Kit? Probably because of the movie Family Man, but I'd say Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage. Now that's kind of scary because you know parts of his life have been a train wreck, but maybe that's why oh. I picked him. Hey, who, yeah, <laughs> whose hasn't? <laughs> Nicholas Cage. If you know, Con Air has to go down as the top, the 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 worst Southern accent in the history of theater. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right, there we go. Okay, favorite 
Christmas or winter, however you want to, favorite Christmas memory that you have? Christmas memory. I would say going, you know, obviously there's some wonderful ones when my kids were little, but I, but first thing popped in my head was a special trip with me and my wife to New York City at Christmas time when we were first starting to date. And so that was totally cool. Yeah, New York City. That's a good one. That's solid. All right. Does Santa wrap the presents or does Santa just set the presents out? Santa does both. So that when they come downstairs or now they're older when they show up, then, uh, you know, you get instant fun shock value, but then you also have a little bit of uh, suspense. You have to open, but definitely both. Yep. That's a good call. Santa does the same here at this house. All right. How underrated are Christmas stockings? Underrated. I, uh, I, my wife is awesome at the stockings. I'm glad you asked that question because I will do better this year. Because typically she does all the little stocking stuffers, but I think they're a big deal for kids. But then the older you get, I kind of, uh, I haven't done that good. So there you go. I'll repent on that right here, right now. <laughs> See, sometimes with the stockings, though, is you can hide the best gift Ooh. can actually go in the stocking. It's kind of everything oh, is settled boy. and it's kind of the Christmas is we're starting to gear down. The big moments are over. But, you know that you've put something special in the stocking. Oh, snap. You might have just revolutionized my Christmas this year. It's a game changer. I like it. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Maybe, I'm not sure, not everybody's experienced this before, but warm Christmas or cold Christmas? Cold. Just got a whole bunch of firewood. It would be a real bummer if we didn't get to have a roaring fire on Christmas morning. Have you ever experienced a warm Christmas? Oh, yes. Living in Atlanta. You kidding me? We've been yeah, crazy. that's true. Yeah. I, I guess I yeah. was thinking more of like a, a tropical Christmas, one that totally messes with your mind. Oh, um, I cannot remember one. I don't think we've ever done that. We're pretty. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. We, we just happened when I was when I was in the military. I during December, late December, I went through Hawaii and Ooh, nice. it, it was very strange. To see the Me and my wife are, we're, we're, when I say planning a trip, you know, we've been discussing it. So we're, uh, you know, don't, I don't know exactly yeah. how soon I'm thinking 2020, we've always wanted to go to Bora Bora. So, you know, maybe we can yeah. do Bora Bora for Christmas. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, it is kind of weird though. It's just strange. It's so, it's so warm and there's Christmas decorations <laughs> up. It's just, for me, it was hard to get in the spirit, but. I made myself. And you can't it. even do the Corona thing. You know, the Corona commercials are pretty cool where they light up the palm trees, but I don't even drink, man. I don't drink anymore. <laughs> so I can't even enjoy that. So, yeah. So Corona, you did not ruin Christmas. Not for us. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, Kit. So here's where we kind of make the transition in the podcast. So the Love Period podcast, uh, what we're looking for, we, we look to people who have the stories or story about stepping out in faith in their life to make a transition from one part of life to another uh, where they felt like there was more between heaven and earth than what they were currently maybe doing. Mm -hmm. And they stepped out into, left from some comfort place in their life and stepped into something in the unknown. What I'd like to hear, and I know you've got it today, could you tell us one of your biggest story or stories of where you made a shift or a transition or made a leap of faith in life out into the unknown. Could you tell us one of those stories about that time? 
Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, the most obvious uh, one, I, I made a, a huge transition in my life um, right around, as a matter of fact, <clears throat> let's see, today's 21st, six days from today, uh, 2005, after a tumultuous relationship with alcohol um, throughout my life, sometimes, you know, long stretches of victory and then some disastrous, you know, runs in my family. My, the last and final drink in my life was December 27, 2005. And so, um, you know, this time of the year is always a big anniversary and shoot, I, I don't miss it. I haven't missed it in a long, long time. I enjoy, <laughs> I really enjoy life without it. But, but anyway, it's a huge part of my life story. So when I ventured into that new world, you know, what, 13 years ago, um, I was coming out of a career where I'd been in the ministry for many, many years. I was a, a preacher and, you know, I had had success in that area, led large churches, done a lot of things in that after I was the wildest guy to ever go into ministry in my twenties. Now it's in my forties and, uh, and, you know, without a pulpit, I'd walked away from it. And, um, and I was searching for a purpose in my life after having had one for a long time. And, and now, you know, I was, I was rebuilding my life. I had, um, gotten remarried, you know, I was uh, trying to figure out what in the world am I going to do for a career I've always done what I loved you know and now all of a sudden I have to hustle and you know try to figure out a way to support a family doing something that I haven't done you know and so anyway I was looking for you know what is my great gift you know to the world because I was like I don't know if I ever get to preach again whatever and so I I was standing out on a balcony uh, late at night looking at the stars and it was a heartfelt prayer and I, I prayed, I said, if you ever let me preach again, I'll go to the harassed and helpless. I'll go to the, you know, I, I remembered, you know, the sheep and the goats. And, and I, I called it out in this, in this, what was a life-changing prayer. I didn't know it at the time. And it was, I'll go to the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the stranger, the sick, and the prisoner. Things that I'd never really done. I'd spoken about it a lot. <laughs> I'd gotten people fired up to go do it, but I hadn't done a lot of it. And so shortly after that, I was invited to go to a prison and I walked into a prison and not knowing what I was going to find. And strangely, there was no fear. There was no apprehension. It was excitement. I couldn't wait to go in and, and experience, you know, what I'd only read about or seen on TV. And it started a, a, a period in my life that is roaring today. I mean, it's only gotten stronger and brighter, but I walked in there and connected with these men not knowing that that was going to change the course of my life and my work forever. Because today, you know, what I get to do, which I'm sure we're going to talk some about, is my wildest dreams come true. I mean, I love what I do. There's not another job on the planet that I would do. And I mean, there isn't one. I don't care. It doesn't matter how much it pays. I mean, I'm doing what I absolutely love to do. And it was because I took a step out into the unknown, into a maximum security prison, you know, of all places. And it happened to be the most violent one in the state of Georgia in the middle of a gang war. And a lot of those gangsters became my friends. And together we started to put together this work, you know, which would take me literally around the world and into prisons and schools and churches all over and become the great work of my life and led to a series of books and, you know, a lot of different things. So I would say that probably is, you know, that, that prayer looking up to the stars, you know, was me stepping out into the unknown. Wow. Well, and we'll get into talking about uh, your current efforts right now, but 
that prayer at that time, and I took note of that, of reaching the harassed and the helpless, that you had said that you would you would go and go the places that you needed to go and go wherever God had for you. Uh, when you were making taking those steps, or you took that particular step, was there anybody maybe around you at the time who was kind of helping you along the way that maybe you didn't recognize it per se at the time that later on that you kind of look back and thinking that these people played a a key to being uh, maybe tillers of the soil around your life at the time that helped you make that step. Yeah, I think that in a very interesting way, mentors would definitely show up and and come and go over the last decade um, plus. Um, that I can look back on and, and you know, I think of a, a guy who was an old prison preacher that that we became friends and we went, you know, to different parts of the world together into some wild, crazy prisons. And he, he's a mentor to me. And I've had pastors along the way. I've had, you know, brothers side by side traveling these crazy roads and, you know, have been great friends. But in that early time, it was basically me. It was me and God trying to figure it out and the, the stars of the show were those men behind the razor wire, you know, wearing white with a blue stripe. And they, they became, you know, that they, they saved me as much as I saved them. But when I say save, I'm not talking about it in a religious sense. I'm just talking about, we were there for one another. They needed somebody like me to come in and believe in them. And I needed somebody like them to believe in me, you know, because I had lost faith, you know, in myself and my God and humanity. I just, I was, really at one of those times where it was it was make or break it was i didn't know how it was going to end it was it might not be pretty it was a it was a very scary time but those are the times that we change you know i mean great changes have fear involved and risk you know and so those are still some of the heroes and the best friends of my life or some of these men that you'll never see in the free world a lot of them will never be out they'll never be free they were desperate for a purpose and I was able to provide that for them. And I was desperate for, you know, someone that could accept me and I judge me because I was experiencing a lot of that because of decisions I had made. But, um, but anyway, they were, they were the ones, the unlikely heroes and the mentors and the teachers in my life that the world has given up on. And uh, that's why, you know, don't believe the lie. There's a lot of beauty behind those bars and, and there's brilliance behind that razor wire. It's this untapped, you know, reservoir of, of human souls that have gone through so much. They understand so many things and they've got so much to say and to teach, but nobody's ever asked them to help. And I was at a point where I was open to anybody <laughs> that wanted to help me with this crazy dream and they were there. Well, yeah. How, when you were making that step, how long did you, how long this particular step? Because I know you and I talked before about some other what built up to that point in your life. When you were making that particular step, how long did you think about, how long did you weigh the pros and cons of making that step? How long did you think about pursuing that call before you actually stepped into pursuing that particular call? You know, interestingly, <laughs> I made that commitment, that promise to God. And then I think like, probably I've done a lot of times and maybe some of your listeners have done, you know, we make these very heartfelt, sincere pledges or promises to God. And then, you know, life happens and you kind of forget about them, you know? And I did that. And I went and started doing motivational speaking. I started doing some, you know, doing some different things around writing and speaking and 
you know, around some inspirational, some comedy, some different things. And it woke up this gift inside of me that had kind of gone to sleep, you know, all those years that I've been in the ministry and after I'd gotten out. And, and it was some simple moves. Like I went and volunteered at a homeless shelter and I started connecting with people that were on the streets and I loved it. I loved the way it made me feel. I loved them. It helped me to quit judging people, you know, and, and because I found these amazing people that were living on the streets and all of them had a story that softened my heart so that I was invited to go and work with a young man that was in terrible trouble. And he was in a, um, a gang. Well, he was in MS 13, which was all over the news nowadays is a very, very violent, you know, gang. And, and <clears throat> I started working with him because I had quit judging people and, uh, and he needed my help that softened my heart so that when I was invited to go into the, this maximum security prison, I was excited to go into it because it was, you know, the, the next thing. And I, I, through working with the homeless and then working with this young gang leader, now I was ready to go on the inside and see some of that magic. And then, so it was over, all that happened over a series of, you know, it was 2008, 2009, 2010. And then I wrote my first book in 2010. And so I can't say that it was just a, you know, I think I'm going to go and devote my work to helping rehabilitate inmates or, it was just one little move after another, and then God would open a door, and I'd make another move. And then I got on the other side of it, and I went, whoa, look what he did. And then I realized I am, you know, making good on the promise I made him, but not because I made this heroic decision to do it. He just led me into doing what I told him I would do, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's kind of like a, um, it was a gradual process. And at the time, that's, it's such, that's such a consistent um, that's a consistent way that people have ex- described how they've taken those steps, that it wasn't a necessarily a switch that was on to off or a 180 degree step of everything was here. We, I made this one decision and then everything was exactly where I thought it would be. It was one step at a time, like a, a gradual process. And that's what you're kind of describing here is like a, almost like a crock pot <laughs> set on, lo- set on low, slow and low, you know, cooking. That's it. And, and, you know, a lot of times I'll use um, the example when you're doing something quote unquote heroic, it doesn't feel that way at the time. Most of the time, it's like those heroes that were, you know, marching with Dr. King or sitting at those counters or riding on those freedom ride buses or, you know, walking into hell in Birmingham with the hoses and the dogs. It certainly didn't feel glorious when they were doing it. Their feet hurt. You know, it was painful. It was disgusting. It was humiliating and all the things they felt. Well, now, decades later, we look back on there and it gives us goosebumps because it was heroic. And see, most people are waiting for the goosebumps as they're doing something heroic instead of just, no, make a move, make a move and, and watch what God does and then make another move and then pay attention and look for the next open door, the next invitation, the next idea that pops in your head. And don't wait for the, you know, the glow and the goosebumps and the white light from heaven when the angel's singing. It's like, it, it doesn't work that way. It works through action, you know, coupled with faith. And then miracles happen. At least that's my experience. Whew. I had to, like, stop because all I wanted to do was respond and amen you while you're talking. But but I could not break your, I could not break the flow that you were on because what you're saying, that is so humongous. Um that I have begin I have begun to learn from myself of 
you just take the steps and what you think are the heroic, I mean, gosh, you nailed it. The, the heroic moments aren't necessarily felt at the time. You're just, you're just taking steps in what you've been called to do. And then you have the retrospect later to see what has actually happened. Man, that is so good. Hmm. Yeah. Don't wait for the goosebumps. I don't know if I'm going to get that tattooed or not, but <laughs> wow, that is so, so good. So we'll get into the power of peace project. Um, I'd like to get to that point, but is there any, like you talk about your, your, your past experience in ministry that kind of helped set that table to get you to where you are today. Um, in those, in those early moments when you're, when you're making those, those steps, was there ever a time or a moment where you felt that maybe either it was the failures or you felt that your life um, your life was maybe not going in the direction that you wanted to go, or you maybe you felt that it was it was over. And, and this is before I chose to go in the ministry. You saying after the ministry run had come to an end? I want to make sure I understand. Let's go with, let's go with after your ministry run had come to an end. Okay, got you. Um, it was, it was such a hard time because I. I had made some decisions and some choices and then other people had made some too, um, you know, along the way and uh, a marriage had come to an end. Nobody ever plans that. Um, money had run out, you know, and I was at the end of that. Um, I was dealing with, you know, an addiction that had come back and had a hold of me. And, um, and through all that, there was the depression and the anxiety, you know, that comes along with being in those scary places. And so, that's where I found myself. Um, but I had to, you know, one thing at a time, none of the things that, you know, that I've experienced that I, I wouldn't trade for anything. I love what I'm doing and, and it just continues to unfold in a way that I couldn't have even dreamed it up. None of it would have happened if I didn't get rid of the alcohol in my life. The alcohol was, was the enemy. There was, there was not going to be a happy ending if I didn't deal with that first. And I think that, you know, people listening or people that I counsel or, you know, anybody, there's something that everybody can point to to say, that's my thing right there. That's, that's the, the enemy in my life. And if I don't deal with that, then none of the magic is going to happen. And I think a lot of times people, they allow those things to remain because they're comfortable, you know, or they're, Hey, it, it might not be good, but it's my friend. <laughs> you know I mean? Alcohol was my friend for many years until it wasn't. And so that was the, you know, that was the big battle of my life. Um, but then once it was conquered, it was, it was over. And now I was in a place where I could really see clearly and make some decisions. But, but there was a desire inside of me that I've always, since I was a little boy, I wanted to do something great. I mean, I would, <laughs> even as a little boy, I would write on things, get the great, you know, <laughs> and just these crazy little things. And I always imagined myself doing great things and so I've always been a dreamer I've always been a believer and I don't mean that religiously just a, you know I believe in possibilities and I'm not satisfied if I'm not doing something you know what I consider monumental big but after the ministry had had run its course and I ran out of gas and burned out my dream had ended I mean it was over and I and that is a very very scary place because when you've when you've realized your dream and you've done what you wanted to do and you've 
you know, you've achieved what you thought you wanted, which was, you know, I wanted to make an impact. I did. I wanted to lead thousands. I did. You know, I wanted to speak on big stages around the world. I did. I want, I, I did them all. And then my life fell apart, you know, and, it, and I was, you know, drunk and broke and divorced, you know, I mean, what do you do then? That's where the battle, you know, that there's where the story begins. You know, you can't be a hero um, if you hadn't gotten knocked down, <laughs> you know what I'm yeah. saying? And so um, luckily, and I tell people this, and I hope I'm answering whatever question you asked me in the beginning of this little segment, but um, you know, when people say, what's your greatest gift? You know, we all have different skills, talents, gifts, whatever. Mine is one that I don't know if I would have chosen, but <laughs> it's like, if you knock me down, I get back up. And and that might be my, the, my saving grace is that you can't keep me down. And, but what sucks about that gift is in order for me to exercise that gift, I have to get knocked down <laughs> you know, to get back up again. And so, but that's been the, the, you know, reoccurring theme of my life is I get knocked down, I get back up. I fail, but I fail oh. forward. And I try to help people not be so afraid of failing. It's like, man, get fired up about failing. You know, try again. When you lose, man, that's a blessing. Get up again, stronger, wiser, craftier, you know, go for it. And I've developed a um, I don't know, a lifestyle of, I love risks. I love doing things I've never done before. I love going into scary situations that I can't depend on me because I love depending on myself and you can't really depend on God if, if you don't need him. And uh, I think there's a lot of people out there claiming to live by faith, but they don't take any risky moves. They don't ever get into situations where you have to rely on God. We just kind of rely on our talents, stay in our little safe spaces, play it safe you know and and then wonder why am i not happy you know when we're built to we're built to take the castle and win the maiden and slay the dragon you know that's how god made us and we're sitting in cubicles doing the same thing all day every day and wondering why i'm not wow. happy you know so i i got out of that got out from behind the desk and went out you know into the world and started fighting some battles and i came yeah alive. it sounds like that your risk taking that your risk taking was redeemed that that's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And I just changed my wrist. So, you know, it's kind of like, I see people that are wild men out in the world, you know, it's like crazy, you know, like I was just drinking and drugging and running and chasing, you know, risky behavior, just crazy. I mean, I'd crash cars. I was doing all kind of crazy, getting fights, whatever. And then they find faith and they, you know, get right with God and join a church and then they become boring. It's like, yeah, why? I mean, you know, so I started taking risks, you know, that were righteous risks, you know, it was like go into areas you've never been to and do things you've never tried. And, you know, I mean, fight the good fight, but whatever you do, don't be boring. Yes. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, live a life of adventure. You know, I mean, I, I think like our relationship with God, that's what it ought to be about. People that are bored, you got to ask, you know, I mean, what's not clicking because that, that doesn't make sense to me so yeah i've always been a risk taker and it, it got me in a lot of trouble in a lot of parts of my life but now it's the best thing that i do and i wouldn't have it any other way not stupid risks i mean i do that too sometimes when working in some of the areas i work in but you know something that challenges us and gets us out of our comfort zone i think that's what lights up you know yes yeah, so 
So with those with those battles that you had that you went through, how important do you think those fighting those battles and even losing a lot of those battles at the time when when those battles were being fought, you were losing those battles. How important do you think those battles were in being able to relate to what you do today? God, I think it, I think it's huge. Um, any, whatever good I am at what I do, especially relating to some of the audiences that I face or even one-on-one, you know, right before this interview, I had a young man in my office and I was, um, you know, in a coaching um, appointment with a client and the power that I have is my ability to relate to him. And God has used um, my choices, good, bad, ugly, stupid, you know, choices to give me experience. And he'll use whatever we give him. I believe that. And so you give him a mess and he can make a message. And, you know, empathy is very, very powerful. Um, it's even more powerful than compassion if I can look somebody in the eye and say, you know, I feel you, I really, really do feel you. And so all my failures, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not ashamed at all to say, you know, Hey, you've been through a divorce. Me too. I feel you. You know, you've lost a parent young in life. I feel you. You've been through a bankruptcy. Me too. You know, you've been through, you battle addiction. Me too. You got hurt when you were a child. Me too. You know, you, you got, locked up and arrested me too you know i mean those things are are now they're so valuable but most people look at those things as shame is like they don't want anybody to know they've been through a divorce they don't want anybody to know they were abused when they were a kid they don't want anybody to know they're in rehab they don't want anybody to know that they you know they're broke busted don't have a dime and i see those things as as jewels i mean those are the things that give me credibility with people that i'm trying to help now because there's no shame around those things. It's called being a human being. You know, I mean, all of us are going to go through those dark days. Um, and, and our ability as human beings to empathize or at least to exercise compassion, um, which is co-passion, my ability to feel you. You know, when you're hurting, I hurt. When you celebrate, I celebrate, you know. But I think as in humanity, our humanity is that I feel you. I see your pain. I feel you. I got you. And so, you know, I don't regret any of my failures. I don't, I don't like any of the things that I did that might have hurt people. You know, nobody wants that. But now they're, they're, you know, of greater worth than gold because it allows me to have this vast life experience that there's, there's many, many things that I can relate to, you know, as far as the, on the human spectrum. And, and there ain't nothing wrong with that. Right. Yeah. Well, give God a mess and he can make a message. Love it. <laughs> Love it. All right. So one of the big things that you're involved in right now is the Power of Peace Project. We've been kind of, you've been kind of hitting around it with some of the things that you've discussed. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Power of Peace Project and what you guys are doing there. Okay. Well, when I went into that prison back in 2009, that's when my life changed. In 2010, I started writing a book about it. And then that's led to a series of six of them. And, but it was an experiment. I grew close to these guys you know, on the inside of this prison and, and there were daily fights and weekly stabbings and, you know, bodies. There was a series of killings. I mean, it was a very, very dangerous, one of the most dangerous prisons in the country. I just didn't know it. And my heart went out to these guys because they had to live there and I got to leave. And so I kept going up there. I wouldn't get paid to do it. I just went and served and it was one of those powerful things I'd ever had. So I, I kept doing it. 
got hooked on it. You know, I get hooked on whatever makes me feel good. And so I've learned to <laughs> get hooked on good stuff because I'm going to get hooked on something. Huh. And so anyway, uh, we tried an experiment. January 18th, 2011, Dr. King's holiday, 12 men signed a peace pledge. And we developed a curriculum that it was how could we bring peace into the lives of convicts that live in a very violent, dangerous atmosphere. And a momentum developed. And over the next year, that place became so peaceful that it won institution of the year that year in the state of Georgia went from worst to first. That put me on the map. Those guys did the heavy lifting. I got all the credit. So I started being invited to speak in different prisons. And then I went on prison tours and I started getting in front of thousands of convicts you know, around the country. And, and I developed a love and kind of a, a, a specialty in working, you know, especially with rival prison gangs. And so I developed a program that now, you know, after a number of years, it spread to schools and we have a program for churches. We have a program for law enforcement. We have a program for wounded communities and it's all based on the original program that we did with those, with those men. And really what it is, is it's a program that helps bring together rivals, okay? So we do programming in schools that bring together, you know, the cool kids and the not so cool kids, the athletes and the marching band, the blacks and the whites, you know, and the browns, the Christian Muslims. I mean, we, it, we're bridge builders. And they're based on universal laws and principles, you know, that are out there for anybody. I just kind of packaged them and put them together in a way in a series that, that help it can be a parent and a kid, you know, that can't relate to one another. Mm. It can be cops and communities, which is a real powerful program we have going on right now. But they're based on seven principles that go like this. Um, think about any, any relationship of rivalry. It can be Crips and Bloods. It can be millennials, you know, trying to relate to baby boomers. It can be whatever. Democrats or Republicans. There's one. <clears throat> it's easier for me to bring together Crips and Bloods than, than yeah. Red. You know what I'm saying? I was about to say and good luck with that is, one. Well, and they then they have the same colors. Think about that: Crips and Bloods, red and blue. Democrats, Republicans, red, and blue. And I'm telling you, I'm having more success bringing together Crips and Bloods. But anyway, <laughs> but here's how the process works: One, seek first to understand your opponent. Okay, if I can bring understanding as my number one goal into a new you know, relationship, especially with a rival, to find common ground with my adversary, find something that we have in common. Three, walk a mile in the other's shoes before I judge. I don't have the right to judge until I've tried to put myself in your shoes and try to figure out where you come from and what you've been through that has led you to this day when you're doing X, Y, Z. Four is practice active listening and pause before responding. Listening is becoming a lost art. And so if we can actively listen and try to understand, find commonality, walk a mile, means I'm gonna ask good questions and listen and then shut up and pause before I choose to respond. And then when I do, number five is use compassionate communication and your influence for peace. So when I do speak, my words ought to be deliberate and meant to de-escalate and not to pour gas on the fire like a Dr. King. He used his words very eloquently and deliberately. And that's a lost art that we're teaching kids is language is very powerful and creative. And if you learn how to use words, you can get 
basically whatever you want. I don't care if it's sales or whether it's peacemaking, whether it's poetry, whatever it is. And then six is when I'm wrong, I'll promptly admit it, quickly make amends. A real man admits his mistakes and makes it right. And so we're teaching those principles. And lastly, treat your enemy with dignity and respect, even when you disagree. So there's never a time where I have the right to disrespect another human being. And it does not, well, he started it. <laughs> Who cares? I, I need to respect people because I'm a respectful person. You know, I need to treat people right because of who I am, not whether they deserve it or not. And we're living in such a reactionary time where everybody is choosing a side and putting on a label and digging in and picking up a sign and setting a car on fire. <laughs> you know, I mean, and everybody's, whoever shouts the loudest is going to get hurt. And kids are watching. So those seven principles, we're teaching to rival gangs, we're teaching to rival religions, to rival political and gender, race. It works with, with everybody, everything, every color, every problem. If we could get the Israelis and Palestinians to practice those seven principles, seek first to understand the other. Find common ground with them. Walk a mile in their shoes before you judge them. Listen to them when they're talking. Communicate with them respectfully. If you're wrong, make it right. And treat them with dignity and respect, even if you walk away disagreeing. You know, if we did that, we could get along as a people. And so we're teaching police officers to do that. We're teaching kids to do it with one another. Um, and it's very powerful. So now, you know, long way around the horn to answer your question. We have a program we're doing in schools. We have a program we're doing in jails and prisons. We have a program we're doing with law enforcement. And now one of the most exciting things is we've got communities reaching out to us. So Selma, Alabama, uh, recently reached out. We've got a peace initiative going on in that town because it's become a very, very violent little city. And then as of this week, we just signed on uh, Benton Harbor, which is a small town up in Michigan, which is the most violent city of Michigan per capita. And so we're taking on whole communities now and trying to pull together the faith community with, you know, the, the schools, the jails, and law enforcement and trying to get people to practice these principles and learn to live in peace. And so it's a pretty exciting time. Well, the, the totality of, of this, of all of these things can kind of go back to that, to that prayer on that balcony. Yep. When you were in, <laughs> in that moment, could you at all envision, and let's just go, let's take a couple of steps steps from that balcony and there you are with that, that first young man that you said was in the MS 13 is when you were in that moment with that young guy and being able to connect to prisoners in that way, where you are today, where your organization is today, is, is this what you envisioned? Did you have any idea this was where it would be? <laughs> no, I, I always say, you know, God has done this in such a way where I, it would be laughable for me to take any credit for it, you know, cause it's just crazy. You know, I, all I thought, to be quite honest, was I'm going to be a prison minister and I'm going to spend, and I had no idea how I was going to raise money around it because not a lot of people are trying to give money to help people that have done a lot of damage like that. But I thought I was just going to be a prison minister and that was going to be the way I was going to try to help the world is go help some convicts to, you know, have a better quality of life and maybe try to come home and not hurt anybody. 
And then it just started changing. And like I said, it wasn't goosebumps every time it changed. It was an invitation. And I developed this uh, motto that I still use is I go where I'm invited because that's what I see Jesus doing. I don't see him ever turning down an invitation. <laughs> Somebody mm. said, come to my house. He went, Yeah. you know, and, and he, he didn't go where he wasn't invited much, you know, if he did watch out cause he wasn't happy. <laughs> and, uh, you know what I'm saying? But so I did that and it's just evolved. And now it's, it's the joy of my life to, to look around and go, my God, look at this. Those 12 inmates, God bless them. They changed my life. But now, you know, literally we've got thousands of kids and thousands of inmates around the country and even overseas that have followed their lead and found some peace. And uh, I mean, we've got prisons that boast um, a 50% decline in violence because of this program. And now we're seeing kids that, you know, admittedly say I was going to kill myself and I didn't because the power of peace came, you know, or kids that were, you know, about to make a decision to, that was going to change their life. And so we're seeing kids, you know, hurt themselves, hurt one another, overdose, you know, these things that scare all of us as parents. The solution is not that complicated. It basically, we just got to get in there and start building bridges and coming together. And when I ask the kids, can you help? You know, they're like, nobody's ever asked us to help. We'd love to. Convict said the same thing. You know, you want us to help? Yeah, you got to help me. I'm trying to help these kids, you know, in the hood that are that are in desperate danger that way. <laughs> they lived it. They've been they've been there. They've they've done it. And so I'm letting them become the peacemakers. And the same thing with the the officers. You know, I went to my last week we graduated about a dozen officers through one of our program and I went to them and said, Now, I need you to help me construct a peace plan, a stop the violence campaign for this middle school we're getting ready to work in. And they're like, love to. And they came up with some ideas that I couldn't have come up with because they're out there day in, day out. They have great ideas. Nobody's asked them to. All they do is get asked to come and get up in front of the kids and say, don't do drugs. You know, it's like they've got more to say. All we got to do is ask people to help. And you'd be amazed what people will do. But, you know, I know I ramble, but no, I could have never seen what that little prayer on the balcony and then going and loving on some convicts that was going to take me to, you know, the places where I get to go. Yeah, just like it's just one faithful step at a time. We never know where that path is going to lead. Exactly. Um, one of the things that you said was earlier was how much beauty there is behind the wire, behind the fences. Those guys who are there, you talk about being able to, to make connections and build community and, and bridge the gap and bridge rivals together seems to be easier in that environment. Those guys who are in those places, those, how, how do you think that maybe it's the vulnerability that they may not have or maybe they're, they're, they're in a place of not desperation, but they've already, their failures were so visual that they're a little more open to vocalize where they, where they fall short and then also maybe take some steps to try something new. I, I think that, yes, I think that that's a true statement in a lot of, in a lot of ways at the same time, you know, they'll come out to a lot of different things. Some of them will, 
just because it's it breaks the routine and the monotony of a place where it's all about the same thing every day all day and none of it's really good and but the the ability to connect with them i can teach people how to do it but you can't fake it they are desperate for a purpose even if they don't know it you know they're desperate to make right what they've done wrong even if they won't admit it i know these things because i know that we're made in the image of our creator at our most elemental fundamental level and so they have dreams they have hopes they have desires they have heartaches and nightmares they just you they they keep them deep deep inside because in a prison environment you do not show what you're feeling what you're thinking you know you don't you're not vulnerable you certainly don't hope and dream because it's scary you don't want to get hurt again and so i come in and i'll tell them straight up i'm like look god bless anybody that comes in here and tries to bring god to you you know i mad respect for anybody that does that but i'm not here trying to bring god to you today i'm here trying to find god in you today and so you're gonna you're, you're gonna see me look for him in you and i will find him if you let me look at you <laughs> and so when i look at someone i don't care if it's in tijuana mexico you know cartels running wild and us on the street which i did 40 times in 2016 in that city across that border you find what you look for and if i'm looking for the god in you and i know i know he's there and i know you're good regardless of how far you've fallen that person comes alive in in my presence in your presence whoever treats them like that it's what mother Teresa did for the, the lepers the lepers were you know castaways and rejects and hated because of what they could give you if you got too close to them and touched them and mother Teresa treated them like they were god she said i go into the streets of calcutta i look for god in all his hideous disguises so she looked for at everybody as if they were god himself and so they came alive to her and so i adopted that principle in the prisons and so once they see me looking at them with that kind of love and no judgment and i bear my soul and tell them hey <laughs> here are the mistakes i've made i was a chronic drunk driver and if you kill somebody with your car they send you to a place like the places i go and put new clothes on your back and you don't go home so how in the world could i judge them um they they come alive and then they allow them start themselves to start dreaming again a little bit at a time and if you ask them to help say please help me we're trying to save some kids will you help me to figure out how to do it it wakes up something inside of them that's noble because they want to be good dads you know they want to they want to have a connection with their creator they want to get out and do good and make up for what they've done wrong i assume those things and i know they're true until they start to see themselves that way and then i give them some curriculum to start doing noble things and the more they do noble things i praise them and we celebrate them and then they start feeling noble and then we start helping them to construct peace plans for kids on the streets and now they <laughs> unwittingly have become peacemakers <laughs> didn't even know it <laughs> you know and so we just kind of led them down a path that they I, that they they already want to go whether they knew it or wanted to admit it and magic happens you know so it's it's pretty simple but it takes you can't judge them and i don't think it's right to do it you know i really really don't because on some level we're all 
we all struggle with what they do. It's just varying degrees. Because if one person out here in the free world really has a problem with lust, well, that, if it follows its course to its most tragic end, is called rape. You know, out here on the streets, people practice hate on the freeways and rage. Well, you take that to its most tragic end, we call that murder. You know, one person might cheat a little on their taxes. You take that to its most radical end, that's called armed robbery. So they're all different degrees of the same basic sins. And so it's kind of hypocritical to judge another human being that struggles with the same thing. I'm just not as far down the road as that person. Yeah. Well, and it's like you say, it's within the heart. It's the same. The action's the same. One of the things you're talking about that when guys can kind of see through when it's not a genuine interaction, what do you think um, somebody coming into that environment, what would be, how do you, how do you prepare yourself to get ready for something like that to really build a true connection um, with those guys to get started in what what you guys do? How do you build that real, true community connection? Well, I think that magic happens up close and personal. And so, in, I mean, literally, we have in the prison program, Crips and Bloods sitting across from one another. You've got Aryan Brotherhood, which is the radical white supremacist gang, very violent gang, sitting across from black militant Muslims. <laughs> okay, this is just, you know, take off your shoes, holy ground, kind of miraculous space. And at the beginning of the project, they don't want to even be sitting there, but they've agreed to try some things new. And then after week two, week three, week four, week five, they've sat down across the table and looked eyeball to eyeball. And they've talked about things that we've designed for them to talk about, which just spur conversation. And then by, you know, eight weeks is not a very long time, but it's long enough for me to have felt that man's energy and looked in his eyes and listened to him talk. And I realized that he is me and I am him. And he's got a grandmother out there praying for him. You know, he's got little, little kids he cares about just like me. He's from the west side. I'm from the east side. But we both have neighborhoods, you know, that, that I mean, really, there's no difference between the two of us. And so it's not like at the end of the program when they graduate, we reward and celebrate them that they're, you know, holding hands and singing Kumbaya in the prison yard. But they might walk past each other and kind of meet eyes and kind of nod like, so you know, and they're not hating each other anymore. It's harder to hate somebody that you've got close to, you know, it's judgment. Hate happens at a distance. Acceptance, inclusion, you know, happens up close. And so what I would recommend if, you know, let's say somebody was going to go in there with me, you know, next week, how do I prepare to be vulnerable or authentic? And you got to practice that stuff in the free world. And so I, I tell people, quit being so afraid of people knowing your warts and your, you know, I was scared to death when I started doing motivational speaking. You know, I was trying to be this slick, funny, motivational speaker. But deep down, <laughs> I was a fallen preacher who had gotten divorced and went to rehab and went through bankruptcy. And so I was scared to death you know than anybody would ever take me seriously if they knew who i really was so i was this you know slick packaged guy who could make you laugh tell some funny stories and give you some practical points and i had a brother that was mentoring me and i would do a speech record it send it out to la he'd listen to it because he was you know top of his game well-paid um professional speaker and finally we got to the end he said you know what 
it's I, I got nothing else I can do for you. It's a great message. It's a you know five thousand dollar message. And he said, but let me send it to a friend that doesn't know you because I want an objective opinion. So he sent it to a friend somewhere in Carolina or somewhere, and and the guy said he's a great speaker, very entertaining. But who is he? He doesn't tell us who who he is. <laughs> you know, I mean, who is this dude? And so my buddy James, he goes, here's my advice: tell the real story. And I said, what story? And he said, tell the story about the drunken fallen preacher that gets divorced and goes to rehab. And I went, you got any other ideas? I'm not about to do that. And, and he said, well, you asked me my opinion. And so the following week at my next presentation, you know, with fear and trembling, I told people who I really was. And it was like magic. I mean, they were pulled in. I mean, it was my credibility. It wasn't my resume that impressed them or it wasn't my degree or whatever masters it was whoa he's real he's been through some stuff tell us how you found your way out and i got hooked on it to where now i'll tell anybody and everybody what do you want to know i mean i love talking about the deep things in life you know and i'm not afraid to talk about my warts and my mistakes and i think that is the magic with human beings not just convicts is there's a refreshing uh, quality when you meet somebody that's not caught up in themselves and not trying to impress they're just authentic and I think that what I love about the prisons and the homeless shelters and even the kids in the street they're real I love hanging out with poor people because poor people are more real than rich people you know they don't care about their image as much they don't care about impressing you as much they tell the truth if you ask them a question <laughs> you know out in the suburbs gated communities you can't get people to tell you anything. Everybody's worried about their image and how they look and how they're coming across and how they compare to their neighbors and all this. That's, that's rich people problems. Poor people are just real. Jesus was poor. He was poor. His family came from nothing. And that's why I think he loved poor people so much. You know, they were real. And so I got hooked on real. And that's where I find it the most is in the prisons. And I think that's why volunteers that go in there and helps them so much because they get this huge dose of real in this world of fake that we live in, surrounded and protected where nobody can get to us. Yeah. The, one of the words I've used for it is finitis. Everybody's just fine. When we ask what we're doing, we see somebody at work or see somebody at church. How you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm doing just fine. Be yeah. because exactly. if you were to open up the can right there it would get an there'd be an un uncomfortable interchange of well I, I don't know that i was looking to dive into that today yeah one of the things you had mentioned earlier and i made a note of it of you took a step to walk into a prison and be involved in a prison ministry early and i kind of have stood on both sides of this but i'm pretty i'm pretty i, I think i kind of believe this in one particular way do you think that we are called we are called to something that we are already doing in some capacity. Meaning as if there's a predestined plan for us to find that kind of thing. Um, I think it's more of a, like if, if, if you feel called to something, then, then you're already walking in that thing in some capacity as if like you were, the power of peace was a result of you actually walking in a calling God already kind of had you involved in, in some capacity. Um, I think this is like the, the meaning of life is in my opinion is to find 
your unique gift. You know, what the gifts that are attached to your soul when you came into the world, because I believe that we all have them. We have a dominant gift and then we have complementary gifts that, that make us unique. And I think our creator gifted us that way. And, and then the purpose of life is to give that to the world. And if everybody did that, um, I think it was Howard Thurman. I, I don't remember where I heard this quote first, but he said, um, ask not what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and do that. Because the world needs people who have come alive. So if we ask that question and say, what makes me come alive when I do it? That's how we can find what makes us, my, my heart sing. Whatever makes my heart sing is, is attached to that gift. And if I can figure out what my gift is, then I just need to give it to the world. And there's a lot of vehicles yeah. that can allow me to do that. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, one of the things that we always kind of, we kind of ask ourselves when we're talking to our guests is for the for the people who are on the dock right now who are they're waiting to get into that proverbial boat and push out to sea into the unknown they know that they've been called to do something and so many of us we stand on the dock and we just wait for the we wait for the right moment we're just standing there there's a boat there but we we're just we're just waiting for a moment we keep thinking the moment is going to be very revealing to make that first step and you kind of hit on that, like, what would you want them to know or what would you tell them to encourage them to get in that boat and just go? Yeah, I would say <laughs> you've read enough books, you've watched enough programs, you've listened to enough podcasts, you've sat around with your buddies over a beer and a ball game talking about what you might do and what you feel like God's do something today, <laughs> today, just make a move do something act i think that's the miracles happen when we when we step out of the boat I imagine if peter would have you know gone through a you know six month class and tutorials and read books and wrote books and got in self-help groups about stepping out of boats i mean he'd have never gotten out of the boat and i think that people they sit around and and we we become a culture where we can you know uh, ignorance is a choice. I mean, we're in the information age. If you want to learn something, learn it. Just YouTube it, Google it. I mean, it's there. And so, but but it's it's almost like the pendulum has swung to where people just want to become experts with all this knowledge, and they don't do anything. So many people don't don't ever get out of the boat. Go do something today. And and when you notice that you start talking yourself into, I just do it tomorrow. It's it's raining out or eh, it's kind of late in the day not i got the sniffles now my family you know whatever it's like tomorrow never comes somebody needs you to make a move today and i think that you know <laughs> volunteers that go into prisons the illusion is that those visitors i mean those prisoners need visitors nah they like them christian volunteers need to go to prisons because they need to come alive not because the inmates need more Christian volunteers come in there. Does that make sense? So a lot of times it's the, it's the volunteer that needs what you're going to go give. Yeah. That guy on the street, that hungry dude on the street, he needs some food, but you need your heart to come alive. And that's why you need to go do it. You know, whether it's go mentor a kid today, go feed a homeless person today, go sit with an elderly person that has no family in a convalescent home, do that, you know, go and, <laughs> 
join the Rotary Club and serve your community. Do something, but get out of the routine and the, you know, good Lord, don't be bored. You know, do something. So I would tell people, make a move today, any kind of move in the right direction and watch the miracles happen. Oh, no, I don't think that point can... <laughs> I, like you said, I, we're in just some dark times. I don't think that point could ever be beaten enough to just move, to just take an action. I think one of the things that we struggle with sometimes is we can look at Jesus's life and he lived the life of an example for us to follow the leader. And what we have, a lot of times we unfortunately do is we see what the leader did. And instead of following the leader, what we do is repeat what the leader said and then we'll come back and say, gosh, look, I memorized what the leader said. Here's what he said. And, and you know what? I even learned how to say it in Greek. Here's what he said. And it's kind of like, you know, we need, to, we need to act. It's as simple as taking a step and following the leader with, with actions. That's as, that's as easy. And it's, it's really just that easy. All right, kid, as we're wrapping up right here, Power Peace Project what you guys are up to online. Where can people find you guys online to get tied in with everything you guys are up to? Just go to powerofpeaceproject.com or you can, you know, Google Power of Peace, Power of Peace Project. We're very easy to find. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll put those, the links to, to your website and the Power of Peace Project. We'll put that on our Orphan Aid Liberia Love Period podcast blog with the show notes there as well. So yeah, Thing Man Kit. Thank you so much for coming on with us today. Uh, your story and what you guys are doing there and you just being so open, being so authentic is going to be huge for the folks who are looking for those stories who are right there, who are called to something bigger between heaven and earth. And your story today is going to play a huge role in a lot of folks taking that step. I have full confidence in that. Oh, I appreciate it. And I, I really appreciate you uh, inviting me on. Love what you're doing. Believe in your mission and uh, here to help um, however, whenever we can. All right. Thanks a lot, Kit. We'll talk to you later. All right, brother. Thank you. Wow. What another great story. You want to talk about igniting the flame for your passion one story at a time. Kit's story today was absolutely phenomenal. What is going on? What they're doing with the Power of Peace Project, what Kit has done, he and his team is doing right now is absolutely phenomenal. And what's so great about it is, is his story is another great example of somebody who stepped out in faith, stepped out into the unknown. Where they're at today was not really part of the plan. It was just part of the process, just one step in front of the other. And that's what got them there and what they're, where they are today and the great things that they're accomplishing as an organization and what Kit and his team are doing there is absolutely phenomenal. And they're right here in Georgia. They're right down the street. But even if you're not in Georgia, they're doing stuff all over the United States with the Power of Peace Project. So if you go to OrphanAidLiberia.org, check out our podcast blog there. We'll have our show notes there and you'll be able to check out. We'll have all of our links to uh, Kit Cummings and the Power of Peace Project so you can get tied in with those guys. Uh, we, we hope that Kit's story today, there are so many opportunities out there. We hope that his story today is just going to inspire hands for the harvest. Just one more, one more hand out there. There's so much work that needs to be done and you've got the hands to execute on those big things out there that God has put for you to do. You have the skills, you have the talents, you have the unique gift sets. You gotta take that step out in faith though. You gotta leave the porch. You gotta take that little step out into the unknown. 
We thank you guys so much for downloading this episode of the Love Period Podcast. If you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe to us in iTunes. You can also subscribe to us in Stitcher as well. Again, check us out at OrphanAidLiberia.org to find out more about us as an organization at Orphan Aid Liberia. We have so many great guests lined up in the future for the Love Period Podcast. We can't wait to share these stories here in 2019. You guys have a great day. God bless.